Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a very snowy spring day here in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is Hilary Argyle, a.k.a. the YouTuber and Instagrammer known as Bookborn. Hilary is a video essayist and reviewer, primarily of science fiction and fantasy, engaging in deep dives on tropes, philosophical questions, community, authors, and more. She's also one of the judges for the popular self-published fantasy blog-off. Hillary and I chat about the difficulty of gauging success on the internet and the emotional complications of reviewing media when you know there are real-life people on the other end. We also hit a bit of topical news regarding the way anger tends to sell so much better and how that messes with the view counts on her YouTube channel. Enjoy my conversation with Hillary Argyle. Well, hello, hello. Thank you for joining me today. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. I know, right? It's fun. I I, I like to get occasionally on, on page break, I like to pull in someone who's not necessarily kind of in the uh, direct ecosystem of like creating because I, I find... I find the kind of that that's hard to say because because like booktubers and like yourself, that's a different type of creation because you're creating uh, these videos and talking about other things that people have created. Yeah, it is different though. <laughs> right, it is. It's a, it's a little bit of kind of a kind of outside the normal uh, kind of specs, and I really like that perspective. In, in terms of creativity and in terms of kind of professional, uh, you know, making a living at this life, um, I, I was I was wondering when you kind of got into the kind of the booktubing game. So I got into the booktubing game in June of 2020, which surprisingly, a lot of people got into the book game in 2020. I, I can't imagine why. Which is funny because it actually was an idea I had for four years prior. It just happened that everything worked together to come after the pandemic started. Right. So I do find that funny because then everybody else was like, once it started, they're like, we should do it. So it was probably the worst time for me to really get involved <laughs> in some ways. But um, I don't regret it at all. It's very fun. It is just a hobby for me. So it is a little different. Like I am not attempting or trying to make a living off of it, which I do feel like gives me a little bit less stress. I can't imagine creating as a primary income source. That's it's too stressful for me at this point. I don't think I could do it. Well, And and with the um, kind of YouTube thing, there is there's kind of a, a massive discussion uh, to be had that, that is going on, I think, um, in terms of fandom around the way kind of uh, algorithms determine what a booktuber, a um, uh, like an Instagram reviewer, the people that use social media to talk about fandom and books and stuff like that, they're very restricted by like what is really popular. I'm interested in the kind of that angle I talked and this was uh, over a year ago, I talked to Daniel Green mm -hmm. about this topic of like, how do you kind of keep doing fresh content, but also like stay relevant in these algorithms and among fandoms? It's a crazy kind of uh, thing to try to balance. Yeah, it's the worst because <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned because I'll be on Reddit and people will always say something like, oh, Daniel Green doesn't do reviews anymore. He does other stuff. And I'm always defending the booktubers in the comments being like, yeah, because no one clicked on the other videos. So you can go be here and say that, but he's making content that people are watching because it's his job and he can't just 
create content that nobody will watch or else he will no longer have a job. And I think people just don't understand that you can complain like, I like this other content. Well, clearly you were in the minority or you actually weren't clicking on it because no one was watching. And I, I struggle with that a ton because I like to make kind of niche content and I just have to be okay with that not doing very well. You know, my content that does the best is always TV content. So when I talk about TV shows, I get so much more, but I came on to talk about books and that's what I want to talk about. Um, but the barrier for entry with books is so much higher, right? A TV show takes 40 minutes to watch. A book takes hours and hours and hours to read. Um, and, and so that barrier to entry is just always going to be a big hurdle for booktubers specifically. Oh, yeah. Well, I've, I've talked to people that work in kind of related industries uh, who work in kind of the bigger industries like TV and movies and stuff like that. And and the kind of the level of scale for fandoms is something I think that most people don't think about. Um, you know, a very popular book can sell 100,000 copies. A very popular TV show can have, you know, 10 million viewers and a very popular movie can have 100 million viewers like like the levels of scale along that and and kind of the response by fandom it's just it's almost mind-boggling yeah and it's so funny because when you're with other book lovers you don't realize sometimes how niche your loves are so i'll be like talking to someone who says they like fantasy but aren't necessarily like super in fandom and i'll be naming these in my opinion, very well-known fantasy author names. And they'll be like, who's that? Uh, who's that? You know, and I'm like, what do you mean you don't know who Fonda Lee is? And they're like, never heard of Greenbone Saga. And so we do have this myopic view, I think, that our fandoms are much bigger than they actually are. I think the internet makes us feel like they're bigger because we get to be connected to so many people. But truthfully, like you said, it's such a small scale when you look at fandom in general. Well, and and for reviewers and kind of that kind of creating content that people will want to watch and engage with. Um, I mean, you can see the issue with that we were just talking about when you go to somebody's channel, if you go to a booktuber's channel you look through just the view counts on their videos and you can see exactly where the problems are. You can see why you can see why so many of these big uh, kind of booktubers end up doing like tons of anime content mm -hmm. and tons of TV show content. And, and if they're talking about Epic fantasy at all, it's going to be wheel of time. Like, because those videos you got, you know, the previous video has a thousand views and then the video on wheel of time has 50,000. Yeah. Wheel of time, Malazan, Stormlight. Yeah. Like those are the three that are going to give you like consistent views. And um, it's funny because I am in like some just general YouTuber communities to, you know, improve craft or whatever. And most niches are like, oh, it's so hard to get subscribers. I get like so many views, but no subscribers. And BookTube's the opposite. You'll get subscribers and then view count is way under how many subscribers you have because someone subscribes to you because you're reading one book and then your next 10 books aren't relevant to them and they just don't watch it. And it's... um. Yeah, it's just one of those really weird, it just doesn't follow a lot of other niches. It's its own thing. Well, and you get kind of these uh, scales of, of, the, of the type of readers that you run into in terms of how much they read. You know, I think that the average reader probably only reads a few books a year. And so they're going to read what's incredibly popular, like Brandon's stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to read the thing that is most popular, especially among their friends and the people they hang out with and talk to about these things. And then maybe they'll get to a couple other books that year. Um, and of course, you've got, you know, the small subset of power readers, the people that are reading a book every week and all that stuff. But I think for kind of the um, the broader spectrum of these things is, yeah, you're going to you're going to most people are only going to read a few books a year. Yeah. And it's funny because before I got involved um, with BookTube, I considered myself an insane reader. Like I was like, I read more than all of my friends and I was reading like 12 to 15 books a year. You know, that's about a book a month, maybe a little more. And then I got on BookTube and now, gosh. I am one of the people who reads a book a week to just try to keep up content wise in general. And so it's funny to me because again, that's another skewed thing. Like you said, there's a small subset of us and booktubers are one of them, right? We're reading insane amounts every year. I mean, I even read, I read what 60 to 70 books a year and that is small 
compared to most of my booktube friends. They're reading hundreds of books a year. And so you lose perspective. People are probably reading eight to 10 books a year, and that's a lot. And I'm making a video every week, which is 52 videos. So that means what? A 10th of my videos maybe would be relevant to that general reader <laughs> who's already reading more than probably 50% of the population. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a very, um, it's a weird kind of thing to wrap your head around to, to kind of understand these kind of scales of, uh, audience. Um, you know, another thing and the kind of another way I always think about this is that when you have, uh, when you have, these big audiences that kind of filter down into, you know, who likes what niche content, um, you're going to end up a lot smaller. You know, like I, I remember kind of like starting this podcast. I, uh, I, I kind of got six months in and I'm looking at like, Oh, okay. I get, you know, 600 to a thousand listens a week, you know? And I, in my head, I'm thinking that is nothing. I like, I've read about podcasts. I know you know, that this is kind of a hard thing to break into. And, but also in terms of like having people listen to me speak, going to like a convention, if I had 600 to a thousand people in a room, that would be mind blowing if that was in person. Like that's a huge number of people. I go on that journey all the time. Yeah, right, right. Like you, you kind of have to readjust your perspective to really engage and enjoy doing this kind of thing, right? Completely. I'm just laughing because that's totally me because I'll be like, I only have 23,000 subscribers. Like that's nothing. YouTube, I mean, that is a drop. No one knows who I am. And then I'll sit there sometimes and be like, but 6,000 people watched a video I put out or one of my, my highest video, like 50,000 people watched me talk on the internet. That's mind boggling. Like that number, I can't believe more than 10 people are listening to me rant on the internet. Right. And so it is it's a weird comparison game. And I'm sure, I mean, gosh, you probably get that as an author too. Does it feel that way? Oh yeah, for sure. It, like the, and, and when we've talked about this before on this podcast is when you talk about scale, it's very difficult to talk about success and to talk about um, what it is that, um, what kind of like what it means? Like, so are you going to talk about financial success? Are you going to talk about uh, visibility? Because visibility is something that gets very confusing on the internet. Because you can have someone whose books you see everywhere, and everyone is talking about them, and it's really the hot thing for like a month or two. And then you can talk to that person, and they will reveal to you. Oh yeah, you know, I still have my day job because I don't really sell that many copies. And it blows your mind because you're like, what I see you everywhere. And like my own personal experience is that like I don't get a whole lot of traction online. I get mentioned here and there. It's really cool when I do and I'm very grateful for people talking about my books. But I also sell like a really good number of books and but it's all very quiet. Like and so my when I'm online, my sense of Am I doing good enough? Am I, you know, successful enough as an author is very different from when I get my royalty checks. You know, I, yeah, I was gonna say I ran into that because I did like some research on Hugo winners and Hugo winners have so much visibility, but a lot of those winners don't sell well, which was interesting. And, and your books are very popular, like probably in a bookstore, right? People go in and buy them in a bookstore. That's not an online presence. And it is, it's how do you, how do you judge that? I don't, I couldn't even begin to decide on that because you probably get a little bit of a complex. Like I wish my books were talked about more, but then you get a check and you can live off of it. So. Oh, oh, very much. That is, that is something that I like when, especially when you're like in your basement writing books for years at a time and not really interacting with people that much you definitely get this weird complex of like, like you're hand wringing all the time. Like, you know, part of it is you want to be a little bit famous. You want to have people talking about you. And then the other part of it is I, I don't want to go get a day job again. Like I have no skills outside making this crap up. And, and so you're, you're kind of like, you're in this kind of thing where you're, um, where you're constantly worried about your engagement and you're worried about, okay, are enough people talking about me? Is there traction for this new series? You know, all this stuff. 
And you don't really know like what the answers to any of those questions are until, you know, okay, I got a royalty check and that'll pay my bills for the next six months. That's great. Like awesome. But you're still like, you still have this ego that you're trying to be like, oh, I, I really want people to talk about me, like kind of thing. When was your first book published? What year was it? Uh, almost two, uh, almost a decade ago. So uh, April 13th of 2013. Okay. I'm wondering how much has the internet changed in those 10 years since you published that? Like, I feel like the fandom has moved even more online than it has 10 years ago. Man, you know, I, I don't really know. Like, it, it's it's a very weird thing to try to understand. Because I guess I started getting into kind of the social media and all that stuff probably right before, like the year or two before my book came out. You know, you try to start building community and all that. And I definitely feel like social media at the time was a little, like, nicer. It was less political, less, uh, less you know, let's all get angry at each other all the time. Uh, like I remember I got uh, promise of blood was uh, was nominated uh, it won an award it won um, I think it's my only book I've won any award for uh, was uh, oh gosh it was the the Gamble award I think mm. but I think it doesn't even exist anymore I think they stopped <laughs> but like when that happened I like it was very cool like because I was just a baby writer and my Twitter lit up like I was lit I very much remember I was on a walk in the woods with my wife and I just happened to glance at my phone and everything was exploding on my social media and and it was like this great outpouring of love like very kind and everybody's like oh congratulations this is so cool and um I, I feel like I don't see that as much as I used to. Just that general sort of everyone's happy for you kind of thing. So I don't know. I mean, that may not answer your question all that great. But uh, yeah, it, it definitely doesn't feel as innocently fun. I think it does in some ways because I have noticed and something I've complained about is that everything it feels like has to be a discourse. Like there's less now of just people being like, I like this thing and I love it. But someone has to come in and be like, well, it's not perfect, though. And, and it's all this discourse and I'm so exhausted by it. Although I feel like a hypocrite because I also contribute to that discourse on the internet. Oh, so much. Yeah. So much. But it's like, I also want to be like, but if you like something, you can just like it. Like, it's okay. You don't have to go searching out people who don't like it. Just like it. And I do feel like that is how I've noticed it's changed. So it's funny to hear you say that. Like, yeah, people are just, there's a, less like, it, there has to always be a contrary opinion almost everything on the internet it feels like right I, I i've got a few friends who uh hate watch the star wars shows <laughs> and and honestly it gets under my skin a little bit because i watch some of them like i, I don't really watch a ton of them but i, I like i my wife and i have been you know we were, we're watching the third season of mandalorian right now and to be honest i, I kind of enjoy it you know like I take an edible, wife and I cuddle, and we watch Mandalorian. And it's just a fun, nostalgic... And I, I, anytime I talk about it, my immediate instinct is to start saying, okay, it's not very written very well. You know, here are the things that the criticisms that, you know, writer brain can levy at this show. And there's plenty. But also, it's a really fun thing to do every Wednesday night. Like, I, I, I have... I genuinely get joy out of it. And so... I try to stop myself from doing the I'm enjoying it, but thing. And then, you know, when I when I when I have friends who are hate watching it, it genuinely bothers me because it's like, if you aren't enjoying this thing, it's three seasons in just stop. You had your chance to leave. Yeah. And it's it's funny because from a content creation point, um, I've definitely hate watched um, something because I felt like I had to finish. So like for me, that was rings of power. Like I was just it was like a chore. Like I'd sit down to watch this. Cause I also, I don't like long TV. I'm one of those people who can barely sit down for like a two hour movie. Like my husband's, it's just not going to happen. And so they're already like an hour and 15 minutes and I'm not enjoying it. I literally was sitting down to take notes and finish off the season for my YouTube channel. And that experience taught me. I, I was like, okay, going forward, any TV show I cover, I'm going to say up front, I can stop covering this at any time because I just, I can't hate watch anymore. I can't just sit here even though I got so many views from my Rings of Power content, like it's just not enjoyable. I just can't exist 
to dislike things. So next time, like if I'm watching a show and halfway through, I'm like, I don't want to anymore. I'm just going to tell my YouTube followers, like, I don't want to anymore. Go find someone else. Like I can't watch this anymore. Well, and, and hating stuff is a whole industry, right? Like the kind of the, the, the criticism towards, you know, whatever book or movie or TV show that, that is an entire thing. Gets the most clicks. And it's so frustrating to me because I actually got criticized for not hating on rings of power enough. Like I said, like, look, I didn't like the show. It was boring, but it had some good parts and people got mad. Like they wanted to come to this video and just see me tear it down. And I just won't do it. I'm not going to just get on the internet and tear something down because very few things I've seen or read have no redeeming qualities. There's been a few, but (laughs) not very often. And um, people don't like it. My, my negative stuff. If I take two shows and I rave about one, and I'm negative about the other. The negative one always gets more views. Like Andor, I loved Andor. Now Andor was a smaller show, I'll give it that. But I just raved about Andor for videos and like no one cared. And then I said bad things about Rings of Power and it has, it's like my most viewed video. So it's just like, it's hard, negativity sells. So I can't blame people for being negative all the time. And then they get criticized for being negative, but that's what people are watching. And that's the internet in a nutshell. <laughs> it really is. And and it is tough because it's this self-fulfilling prophecy. I, I definitely get frustrated when it feels like the internet is just throwing anger at me constantly. And and that comes from all angles. That comes from, you know, the news and entertainment and all of that stuff. Like I've, I've just... Uh, I've completely disengaged from the news cycle because that's what sells. It's, you know, like, okay, let me know if we're going to get nuked next week. Great. That's probably a thing I should be aware of. But, you know, like all these, everything that's just, you know, pouring at you. We're just, we're, we're bombarded by so much negativity because like you said, negativity sells, you know, anger sells and, and man, I wish that wasn't the case. Do you read your negative reviews? Uh, I did. Um, I did a while back. Uh, you know, kind of early on in my career, and and honestly, I and sometimes I'll see them just kind of like because I click on something. I but I I, I try to make myself if I know if I see a review and start seeing that it's going negatively, I try to make myself stop because that's not affecting me like other than negatively, like it'll make me feel kind of crappy for a day. And, but it's not going to help me in any way. Like reading like a three star review is much more tends to be much more interesting because you can see like, okay, they liked some things and they didn't like other things. And maybe there's some valid criticism here that I can work on. But like one star reviews, you're like, okay, you clearly just don't like what I do. Fine. Yeah. I heard an author say, I don't remember who it was like, you can learn from three-star reviews because you could convince that person to like a book. They're they're willing to give you another chance. But a one-star review, probably, you're never going to convince them no matter what you do. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Page Break listeners. Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. I was watching your video on kind of subjectivity and objectivity. And that is the thing though, right? Like everything is so subjective. You know, everybody, one of my, uh, one of the things that you notice like really early on, you know, when you are reading a lot of your negative reviews because you're a nervous baby author um, is that you can have back to back reviews that say one of them says a glowing thing about a particular aspect of your writing, like character development, for instance, and the next review will talk in the most horrible ways about your character development. That's just how it is. Every person kind of perceives their the what they are entertained by differently. You know, somebody can love something and the next person can hate the exact same thing. Yeah, my favorite example is always that one of my favorite books I read one year I gave it to my husband and he DNF'd it after 25% because he couldn't stand it. And it was my favorite book I read that year. And um, it's just like, you're just, it's never, it's impossible. You're never going to please everybody. 
they're just, and I love, you know, you always often get, um, like I said, on my rings of power review, like I got the same comment. One comment was like, you're too nice in this review. And the next comment was you're too mean in this review. And you're just like, you're never going to please everyone. And it's such a hard concept, at least for me personally to deal with, because I'm convinced that someday I will please everyone. And it's an endless game that will never happen. I'm still searching for it though. And I, and I think in our heart, most of us kind of want to please people, you know, like, like you don't even have to attach the people pleaser sort of, uh, kind of descriptor to yourself. I think just in general, most people want to be perceived in positive ways. Right. And, and so, so that's like kind of a, uh, uh, when you're when you're engaging with that kind of thing uh on you know as a creator that can be really tough like it can be tough to see somebody just totally take a crap on the thing that you worked on for you know a a week or for a year or whatever uh it's funny it's i i saw a um um Uh, like going back to the Mandalorian, for instance, like this is like kind of, you know, I think the second episode of the new season was the one that I enjoyed more than any other episode of probably any of the Star Wars TV shows. Like it just worked for me on a bunch of levels. And like the next day I saw uh, a a very well-known author who's been on this podcast uh, basically give their review of that episode as this is the most garbage thing I've ever seen on TV. Like I, I'm now I'm not watching this show anymore. And so like my perspective from his completely different in terms of how I saw, we, we saw this thing. Yeah. And it's, um, it's yeah, it's, it's one of those weird things where you also have to start separating yourself from the things that you love, that they don't represent who you are as a person. I always tell people that like, okay, I have this favorite author and if someone hates them, it doesn't mean they hate me. It's just, we like different things, but sometimes especially on things that we've loved for a long time. You know, I started loving Star Wars as a very young girl. So it starts feeling integral to your identity and you have to be like, but it's not. (laughs) Star Wars is not my identity. And if people hate it, that's fine. But I do think within fandom spaces, it can be difficult to separate those. Oh, oh, for sure. Fandom gets very personal. Um, I, I, I don't really engage with fandom a ton. I, 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 maybe it's because I kind of do it for a living now. Yeah. And I kind of, when I was like really a fan of things, um, it, it was kind of like when I was a teenager and it was kind of before you had easy chat rooms and lots of places to discuss this stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I, I don't really engage a ton with it, but I also try to respect the fact that other people get very passionate about some of these things. Like it does become a huge part of their life. You know, like you, you see these videos like on YouTube and stuff of people who design whole like rooms in their house around a particular Lego line or around, you know, like one of Brandon's books, like they'll theme an entire room. They'll name their kids after characters, stuff like that. And, uh, and that's totally fine. You know, if they if they want to love that, they can like they're like, I think m- me as a person, like I don't have any kind of room to say bad things about like a thing that maybe I don't like a thing as much as they do. And that's just totally cool. Yeah. And it was definitely a space that was ridiculed for so long. At least I'm coming to terms with it in my 30s is not really caring anymore what people think about what I like. But as a teen, especially, um, you know, it's less mocked now. But I do feel like fantasy and sci-fi when I was growing up was definitely more of this niche, nerdy, mock thing. You were, you know, it was Trekkies, right? It was, you are (laughs) living in your mom's basement and, uh, you know, can't, don't have any social skills or, you know, whatever that that was. And um, it's evolved a lot now, which is nice in that. People are mostly just saying, like, let people like what they like. Like, it's not harming anyone that they have a room in their house dedicated to what they like, that they named it. It's not harming anyone. So just let people be. And it's definitely something when I, I mean, I'm a huge fan. So, like, I definitely, I know there's people who look at me and are like, you are weird. And that's fine. And, and I and I now try to give other people space to be weird in their own respective ways, even if I don't understand why they like something, because it's like, at some point you become an adult and you're like, just let people be happy. Like there's enough, we have to deal with enough garbage as an adult. Like just let them have their thing. I don't care what it is. I like a couple of years into my career, I got a phone call from one of my brothers in which uh, during the call, he asked me uh, when I was going to get a real job. 
Um, Ouch. And, uh, and so I told him how much money I had made that year. <laughs> and he just kind of went quiet for a little bit. He's like, oh, oh, well, good job. I, I guess you do have a, co- a job. <laughs> and it's like such a disconnect from people like, like, cause, because there is a perspe- perception of if you publish books, if you're an author, if you're a creator, you're probably not successful. And, and I mean, there is a element of truth in that, that like most creators don't make a full-time living off of what they do. Oftentimes it is their side gig or a small hobby or something like that. And that's fair enough, but enough people do make a living off of this. And now, especially today when, you know, like science fiction and fantasy and comic books dominate kind of our entire media, like, like you can't even have perspective anymore because it's such a widely beloved thing. Yeah. There's just um, this prevailing attitude sometimes that SFF isn't serious. So like if you were a struggling author in the lit fic space or nonfiction space, I feel like the idea of getting a real job wouldn't be as prevalent. People think, oh, that is a serious job. You're writing serious literature. And somehow other genres aren't serious, even if they could potentially probably make more money, right? Because SFF fandom is like huge. Or I think of like romance, that's another genre that gets very, um, you know, looked down upon, but probably makes a lot of money for those romance authors. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm reading a book right now of Terry Pratchett's essays and, and he touches on this sort of like people just don't take it seriously. And they're always surprised like, Oh, like your books are good. I think that was what someone told him. And he was like, well, yeah, <laughs> like rude. Um, and, and so I wonder if that plays a part of it too. I don't know. I, uh, I remember back in high school, I I had been starting to write consistently, I think around the age of 16 or 17. And I had a, an English teacher that I really loved. She had had she had taught like all five of my older siblings. And she was this kind of older lady who uh, I, I just adored her. She was very funny, very dry uh, sense of humor. Um, and I actually dedicated one of my books to her. So hi, Miss Naplow. Um, but uh, I gave her like something I had been working on. Uh, right before Christmas break. And uh, and she kind of begrudgingly took it. Like she knew I had been interested in writing and had been doing this kind of stuff. And she begrudgingly took it. And I, I kind of expected her to just kind of throw it in the trash can. And uh, and when we came back from Christmas break, uh, everybody you know went into class and sat down and everything. And she walked kind of down the aisle and she just had this manuscript in her hand and she just thumped it on my desk, just like right in front of me and it's all covered in red pen and everything. And she just goes, I really expected to hate this, but it was quite good. And then she just walked away. <laughs> and honestly, like it's like, I can't, I think as an adult, I look back at that and think I should have been insulted, but also it was really like kind of her to take the time to read through it and give me notes and, and to, to see what was good about it and enjoy it. And, uh, and I don't know, it's, I think about that occasionally. Um, because it's, you know, you kind of have to deal with that kind of thing, that, that a bit of that elitist attitude. I do think it's funny too, the thought of like, she probably does not remember that she said that, but it is seared in your memory forever. Yeah. And I, and as a reviewer, I think about that a lot. Um, I posted a positive review on Instagram and an author engaged with it. Like it was, I didn't think that they would. And they were like, wow, thanks for the review. And it like scared me. It was like this idea of like, wow, authors could see my reviews. And even when I do a negative review, it's like it haunts me. Like, okay, if the author read this review, would it be the thing that stuck with them for 10 years? Because I don't want it to be the thing that sticks with them for 10 years. So how can I say that I didn't like it, but not in a way that would be like destroyed <laughs> to somebody? Well, and that I got to imagine like and, and like from a somebody who's never reviewed professionally in any way. Um, I have to imagine that there is a level there at which you want to you want to be honest and you want to talk about your feelings on a book, but also you do understand that on the other side, these people are human beings. You don't want to ruin their week, right? And so there's a balance there that's kind of tough to do. And it's funny because if it's like a really big author, I'm not as worried about it because I'm like, well, they're not going to see it. That's fine. But, um, you know, I'm a little bit in the self-publishing community and I review self-published books 
And that is one of the worst parts of it because I know a lot of those authors, like I see them at least, and they're like the nicest people. And you read their book and you're like, I don't like it, but I don't want to crush you. And I don't want to crush your fans. And so like, I've got to be like diplomatic and nice. But then I also feel like I have this duty to be honest because people are coming to me for recommendations and they know my taste and they want to know how I felt. And it's just, it's tough. I don't know. I can't just be heartless about it. Yeah, there's there's very much a balance to be struck there. Um, I, I, I don't know if I want to give this breath or not, but I think it's an interesting thing to talk about. Um, I don't normally get topical. Did you read the Wired article this morning on Brandon Sanderson? Um, n- yes and no. <laughs> um, I got the cliff notes. My husband read it next to me and was like, you probably shouldn't read this article, but I'm going to tell you about it. It's Okay, so this, I think I'm, I'm going to, I'm bringing it up because I think it's a good example of the horrible way to do this. Yes. It's so incredibly insulting. Yes. To, to, to Brandon, to epic fantasy authors and readers, like to fandom, it's, it's, the, it's the most elitist sort of horrible drivel. And it's in Wired. Like that is a big place to put your like, I'm going to take a crap all over the entire fandom of the most well-known epic fantasy author in the world. Like it was so funny because the criticisms of that article, like I I immediately jumped on Reddit. Like I was like, what are the Sanderson fans saying? You know, and the Sanderson fans are hilarious because they're like, yeah, I get it. It's fine. Sanderson's not for everyone. But did you see them insulting the fans like that? Like they're just just trashing over us like we're stupid and silly and they went to this dragon con and just said how like dumb and invested we were and that actually is the part that did upset me the most because if you don't like brand who cares i i don't care he's laughing all the way to the bank at this point so like it doesn't matter what you think i like his books whatever but i think it made a lot of us feel again like we were teens like we're stupid i think they implied we were fat sort of thing like fat pasty i think that was like one of the lines and you're like is this 1990? Yeah. Like, like it was, people are pretty insulted. And it's, again, it's not because they're criticizing their author. It's the nature in which you do it. Yeah. You know, there's a way yeah. to criticize that is in good faith. And there's a way to criticize that's in bad faith. And gosh, that article. Well, well, I think that what really got under my skin is just how incredibly uh, mean-spirited it all is. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there is ways to be critical of anything. And it's everything on the, the article is incredibly mean-spirited just about the type of people that read it and about about Brandon himself. Like it goes after Brandon for being kind of boring, like in his personal life. <laughs> It's so rude. And the thing is, is that have you met exciting artists, exciting artists who have really exciting personal lives? They're horrible. They are terrible people who have they're on their fourth divorce. They have a drug problem. You know, like these are not human beings you actually want to spend any time around, but they make good articles. Yeah. And you know what? I'm a fellow boring person. Um, Very, very boring. I am really risk averse. I, you know, do day to day things. And so it also is like, look, you need boring people sometimes to make the world run. And ironically, a much interesting point of that article could have been how relatively Sanderson's boringness has made him so successful, because he treats it like a job rather than like art um, is, I think, a big part of his success. And um, that would have been interesting. That would have been an interesting take. And, and, you know, it's interesting, because I have read critical things on like my favorite movies, or whatever. And sometimes you read such a good critique that even though you love something, you gained value from the critique. Mm-hmm. And those, I think, are the, the critiques that are the most interesting. Like I, I have watched, um, the one I always think of, I don't know if you know Pop Culture Detective. He's um, on YouTube. But he did this video essay on Harrison Ford movies. And look, I'm a 90s kid. I love Harrison Ford. And um, gosh, it was one of the most thoughtful, interesting critiques I have ever listened to. And I still think about it. And I watched that like four years ago. <laughs> And um, I think there's a way to critique things that people love that adds value and conversation and and interest. And then there's a way to just stomp all over it. Yeah. And and my goal, hopefully, is to not be the latter, but be the former. And um, I think we need more of that because it's not that critique is bad. It's just sometimes critique can be exhausting. And that Wired article, 
falls under exhausting in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. It's, and it's, it, it is interesting. Like, I guess it, it does kind of circle back to that whole thing of like anger and, and, and hatred kind of sells. I mean, there's going to, that article's probably going to get a lot more clicks because everyone's talking about how bad it is and people want to see the train wreck in person. And that's its own kind of weird online discourse that I personally quite dislike. Yeah, you know, I talked about that in one of my videos, um, talking about, you know, like hate comments I receive. And I talked about like, the thing that they don't realize is that commenting and disliking my video and sharing it is actually bringing me more of a platform. And if you really dislike something, don't engage with it. Mm -hmm. So I have not clicked on the article. I don't want to read it because I want to not engage with sloppy journalism. I mean, I, don't, I guess I can't say that. That's the problem. You also can't necessarily critique something you haven't engaged with. But it, it is like this hard thing because, yeah, that article is going to do crazy well for Wired because everyone's talking about it. It doesn't matter that people don't like it. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, it'll probably get more clicks than if they had wrote a normal piece. Yeah, yeah, that that, that can be very frustrating. It's a it's a weird. I mean, this is this is all tied up in kind of the weird way the internet kind of forces us to engage in these things. The algorithm. And uh, yeah, algorithm. Algorithms crazy, like genuinely bonkers. Um, and you know, like like I I got into I did a little um, self published urban fantasy series that I'm I'm still behind on. I need to get the third one out at some point. But uh, um, so the first book was Uncanny Collateral, and I I did this little thing, and it was kind of an experiment for me. I wanted to do something original, self published, rather than just my novellas, my Powder Mage novellas. And uh, and so I got for like probably a good six months, I got really into the world of self publishing and trying to promote yourself and all of that stuff. And it is it, it it's like it's like trying to solve like a really hard puzzle that's constantly changing the rules. Um, and these algorithms, like, like people, they change behind the, the curtain and the companies that are running like YouTube and stuff like that, they don't talk about the way that they've changed. The people, uh, that engage in these things just have to respond when they notice that something has changed. They have to try to adjust in some way. And like, that is a crazy dance to be trying to do with, well, with your hobby, let alone your actual career. Yeah. And just the guessing games. And um, I've complained a lot about this with other content creators on the YouTube side, like how every platform wants to be TikTok and how you may have gotten on a platform to not be on TikTok. And now you have to force yourself to figure out how to make short content when you didn't expect to. And that, and then also the idea I know from like self um, publishing the authors, I know like you can't tell your friends to go out and buy your book because then the algorithm doesn't know who your book is for. If your mom doesn't read any fantasy, don't have her buy it off your Amazon because you don't want Amazon to think that's who's buying your book. You want Amazon to think it's the fantasy people buying your book. Right. And I've said to my friends, they'll be like, oh, I'll subscribe. And I'm like, please don't. Because if you subscribe and don't watch anything, then YouTube <laughs> is mad about that. And um so it's kind of funny. It's to be beholden to this unknown thing that you're just really trying to guess. <laughs> it really is. It's it's such a bizarre um, and and it, and and every one of these social medias is a little bit different, and it expects something different from you. And and sometimes it genuinely feels like sorcery. You know, like what is going to take off? What is going to you know what video of yours? Like you see this on Instagram all the time. If you if you're one of those people like me who kind of like uh, you know panic scrolls through kind of Instagram uh, the the little videos, yeah, um, you'll see like you'll see a video from like a comedian or something, and you'll be like, oh, that was very funny, and it has 4.2 million views, and you click, and the person only has like 2,000 followers, and all their other videos. <laughs> are maybe 10,000 views. And, and you're like, oh, this is crazy. It's so many people like that. Just uh, just they get one thing that goes crazy big and then you can't replicate it. Um, or you try to replicate it and realize then you would just be making the same content over and over and over again. Um, I definitely see there's people like on Instagram who just are making the same type of videos because people come and want to watch it and that's all they're making. And for me, that's creatively stifling, which is, and luckily for me, it's a hobby. Like, I mean, that's, lucky, right? Because I don't have to con concern myself with it in the end. But yeah, I want to grow. I want to be successful. It's that ego you talked about. 
it never leaves. And uh, I don't know, I still haven't found the correct balance between all of that. Well, and when you when you're a creator, you're kind of you're trying to engage in the two different parts of uh, do do I do I want to be personally fulfilled by what I'm doing? Um, or do I want to be popular? Uh, and and those can be two very different things. I I remember a conversation I had with my agent when I was I was struggling to write my second book, and I had this conversation with her where I said to her like like Look, I'm really struggling to to make this second book unique from the first book. And she actually laughed at me and she said, Brian, epic fantasy writers, they don't want, or epic fantasy readers don't want you to write everything, every single book different. They want you to start them on a cool path and then give them roughly the same thing again and again and again. And, and honestly, my, my career since has been trying to find a balance between uh, giving a consistent product I guess. I mean, I kind of hate using the word product for a book, but but giving it feels too sterile for a book. It it does feel a bit too sterile, but but it's true. Giving a consistent product that that they have learned to love and can continue to love for the same reasons, but also as the writer not getting bored by doing the same thing over and over again. And so you're trying to like walk that weird little tightrope. Yeah, and I I can't imagine how much worse it is for books because they take. A considerable more time to create and make and, and then once it's there it's there um you know you can't do a response whereas a video is is much less production so I, I can't even imagine the scale there but yeah i think about that all the time i mean even i'm trying to um dabble in shorts because that's what youtube tells me i need to do and um sometimes i'm just like yeah i want to be successful and other times i'm like i hate this I hate making shorts and I don't want to do it. <laughs> and so what now? And I just, I can't imagine on a book scale how much worse that is. I, I definitely had that because I, I tried to dip my toe into Twitch at one point. Okay. And I, I, I definitely had that, that realization of, oh my gosh, all the things that you need to do to be successful on Twitch, even minorly successful you know, you have to be very consistent about the times that you go on. You have to play the same games that are very popular um, all the time. You know, like you have to engage in all these different ways. And I realized that is so joyless. And the fact is, is that I'm an epic fantasy author. Why the heck am I doing this? Why am I ruining my private gaming time by trying to stream it to people? And and there's part of me that still thinks, oh man, it would be so much fun to have some success in in a different medium, right? Um, you know, part of why I have a podcast is because I like that little hit of serotonin of putting out a thing, you know, three times a month. But man, it's trying to chase the thing that is popular that will make you get more popular. Oh, it's so frustrating. No. And there's also like some point you have to look within yourself and see if it's even possible. Like shorts that do well on YouTube are funny. And I wouldn't necessarily say I'm like a necessarily very funny person. That's not like my skill, like in general. Um, And so at some point I have to be like, is this even possible? Like, (laughs) am I even ever going to create content that will work there? Um, you know, I'm a video essayist. It's not exactly like peak humor. Um, and, and looking inside yourself for that too is also tough. Like to like admit to yourself, like, look, that I'm probably just never going to get there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. (laughs) 
I had a um, a comment on my YouTube channel, which which is like a very tiny percentage of my views for their views or listens, I guess, because it's not video mostly of my podcast. And somebody just said something recently. They said uh, they liked this podcast when I talked about science fiction and fantasy books more rather than talking to about the person and talking about the things that they know a lot about. And I thought to myself, like, there are so many podcasts and YouTube channels and everything that dissect books. And really, like, I started this podcast because I'm really interested in the people that make things and you know what they like and what they what their opinions are and things like that and and i i i find it interesting how you can have people um who who don't really get what you're trying to do and then they get frustrated at you that you're not doing the thing that they think you should oh the entitlement that's the word i like to use um which is maybe a harsh word but i'm sure you've gotten a lot with your books you know, someone just feels like entitled for you to do exactly what they want. Um, my favorite, I got a comment recently that was like, I hate your intro. It's, it's too energetic. I like slow things. And I, I have to stop myself from being snarky, but I want to be like, good for you. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Good. Okay. Like, it was just so funny. Like this expectation, like, well, you should change your intro because I, a single person on the internet do not like it. And, um, gosh, that's again, hard because you need them. You need the people on the internet. (laughs) But also, you're creating your own thing. And I, I, I have to imagine, as an author, you have gotten fans who are like, well, I liked it until you did this thing, and I don't think you should have. Like, I would have written it better. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. No, like, this was a huge thing with um, my second Powder Mage trilogy. Uh, when I announced it, uh, one of the points of view for the second trilogy is a character from the first trilogy who had uh, who had off-screen cheated on one of the main characters. And I had always found that other character to be really interesting because in my head, I knew their story. I knew this kind of complicated, familiar, kind of family, weird political relationship that she had with this other character and and how um how kind of damaging that had been to her growing up and so i thought okay that's a really cool thing to explore i really want to get inside this person's head for three books and i think that would be really cool and oh my gosh kind of the backlash i got from that i had so many people say oh well uh, you know i hated vlora she was a terrible character i'm not going to read the new series like i really didn't like her i can't believe that he's you know using her for character and you're just kind of like wow you you don't you don't want to engage in what's interesting about that you just want to be like oh this very on the surface you know oh she cheated on taniel and you're like and in my head i'm like nah actually chan taniel abandoned her and never wrote letters and she heard all these rumors about him and and so like like there's a perspective difference in terms of how the fans see something on the page and then turn how i see something as the creator who has thought about this a ton yeah and that's why it's one of my favorite questions when i ever get to interview authors is to ask them like are you ever surprised by either a fan favorite or a fan hate like you you love your character so much and you know so much about them and then you put your your product out into the world. There's that product word again. You put your books out into the world and all of a sudden, like the reaction of people is very different <laughs> than how you feel about those people. And that that's must be an interesting thing to deal with. Um, my favorite is when I get, um, when I get like email questions about side characters that I legitimately don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a character who shows up for maybe five pages and I wrote them eight years ago. And I'm now, you know, four or five books later. I don't have it. Like, I literally will have to go look the name up because I don't have any memory of who this person is. And they just love them. It's like their favorite character. Yeah. And it's and they're like, oh, I really wanted to know more details about so-and-so. I thought they were really interesting. And I'm like, who? I'm definitely the guilty person of that. I always attach myself to a random side character no one cares about. So I appreciate those people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and and you got to have those random side characters. They they kind of flesh out the world. They make it feel like there's more adventure going on than just you know your you know what trio of main characters or whatever. However many characters that you kind of focus on, you can have you have to have people that are in their orbit, right? Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of what your agent said though about people disliking who you chose for your your second trilogy. They just maybe wanted more of what you'd already done. They didn't. They weren't 
weren't ready to explore something different or new. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I, I started a new series last summer and like, it is, it's a, it's a, it's like a struggle to kind of get people to engage in like a new, like uh epic fantasy when they're in love with powder mage. Like that's what I made my career on. Like you, you mentioned, I mean, the, the listeners can't see this, but I have these gigantic posters of the first trilogy uh, behind me uh, in my office because uh, it, like I jokingly say, it's the shrine to what paid for this house. And the fact is, is that when you have lots of people who get really invested in one thing, and then you as the creator move on to something different, you're going to get a bit of backlash from that. Yeah. And um, I mean, I even see that sometimes in YouTube on a much smaller scale, like when I do what I want and no one cares, like I'll always joke about like, oh, some of my favorite videos, nobody watched. <laughs> and because that's the reality. And, and it's, it's just such an interesting relationship. And again, I think the internet um, increases that relationship because Previously, you just weren't as in contact with people. And now even people like authors, even though it's on a such smaller scale than regular celebrities, um, they can have followings on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. I mean, this podcast even, right? It's it's another avenue to connect um, with the people creating your work and, that you love. And I think sometimes it also creates maybe a relationship that people don't realize isn't, isn't as close. Like people feel like they know you, right? But you don't know them. Yeah. And that's something I've even experienced on YouTube. Like people feel like they know me, but they don't. And I don't know them. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Like the internet has created a very interesting thing oh, there. Oh, absolutely. This is a thing. Um, I, I listen to a lot of British podcasts on comedians because I love British comedy. Mm. And uh, it's like, that is my fandom is I love British com comedy. And, and something they talk about a lot is this idea of, of when you do, when you have hours and hours of standup specials, or when you have a, a, a like a super famous podcast that, um, you know, has millions of listeners that, and, and hundreds of back episodes, you can have people that come up to you on the street who kind of act like they know you intimately. And they kind of do. But also the reverse isn't true. You don't know them. You don't know anything about them. You, you don't have the other direction in that relationship. And that's very much a thing in terms of content creation. Yeah, it's, it's a strange new world and it's new enough that I'll be curious to see how it evolves and changes and affects affects fandom um, as it continues. Because like things yeah. I liked as a kid, the authors and creators of that were unknowable to me. I never even thought about them, to be honest. <laughs> they existed in a different sphere. Yeah, yeah. Like I, um, I don't know if when I was a kid and I, when I used to read voraciously, like when I was a teenager, I don't know if I ever noticed an author's name. Like, unless I, I really needed to know, like, what their next book was, like, I, I, like, I, even then I would always kind of go by whatever the series title was, mm. you know, um, like, I didn't think about Robert Jordan. I thought about Wheel of Time. Yeah. And that is, a, it's a weird disconnect. And, and I, now I don't have that disconnect because I am in this professional sphere and I actually know a lot of these people. Uh, but yeah, when I was a kid and I imagine, I think most readers are like this where just they kind of they exist inside of a world and the author is kind of a a different thing like they don't really care that much about the author themselves i mean that is the one interesting thing about books versus a more um a job that creates celebrity based on your face so like a movie or, or music or something is there's a lot of times where you could be a super fan of an author and not recognize them on the street that's less for me now that I'm in the book sphere. So I feel like I'm looking more articles up. But before, like, I remember, um, I don't remember who, it might have been Patrick Rothfuss. Like, I was loving that book. And then there was, like, some guy on the screen, and they said his name. I was like, oh, that's what Patrick Rothfuss looks like? I had no idea. I never thought that I needed to know what he looked like. And it was, like, this weird disconnect. Um, and I do think, again, like, yeah, just the random average reader has no idea, uh, you know, who that person is. Um, Gosh, we don't have time for this, but it's a whole other discourse about knowing who authors are and people not wanting you to read books because of their stance. And I'm like, look, most people just go to a bookstore and pick up a book. They have no idea there's a person even behind it. Like they do, but they don't, you know? Yeah. Oh, no. And, and that's a huge discussion to have about kind of the way, I don't know, like, like, I don't really care to get into the ideas of cancel culture and all that stuff. It's, that's a whole different thing. But, but the fact is, is that, yeah, like you said, people generally don't know or care 
who the author is or what they think, what their opinions are, or if they're a jerk in real life. Um, they want to read a thing and be entertained and then go back to work in the morning. Um, and I kind of respect that. I kind of respect this idea of, you know what? I, I have a hard life. We all have hard lives. We all have crap we have to deal with. We have, you know, like we have death and destruction and the 24 hour news cycle. Frickin' heck, man. I don't, I don't want to have to think about whether this person is really crappy. I just want to read a book and then, you know, then have to go back to my job tomorrow. Well, it's a huge thing that the internet has um, affected because what else would you know? Um, if you couldn't go online and Google it or, or see an article, um, you know, in pre, pre, I would say not just pre internet, but pre like social media types of internet, you just, there wasn't as much coverage on that sort of thing. There was no way to know. Yeah. And so, um, it's like a, I think it's a newer aspect of fandom that I find very interesting as I see it continue to unfold. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Is I mean, like if you want to, you, you want to talk about like horrible people, go to an art gallery, like a big one, like in New York, whatever, and look at those paintings and then Google the life of the person who did that painting. There are chances that they were a terrible person. <laughs> there are good chances. I always say there's very, very few movies, very few art you could engage in if you were worried about people being terrible people. Right. Ultimately, yeah. very few. Um yeah. Right. And it, and it is it is a little bizarre. It's like a but, but like we were what we were talking about earlier was with this idea of um of kind of like knowing artists uh versus knowing kind of face celebrities, you know, people that you recognize. Um you know, you go to a movie, the people that are in it, they were probably paid way more than the director, and the director was probably paid way more than the writer. And the fact is, is that without the writer, you don't have the director. Without the director, you don't have the actors. You don't have the movie. And yet there, there's the scale of how much we actually know about those, that person. And, you know, some some directors and some writers are celebrities in their own right. Uh, but most of them are not. Most of them are people you wouldn't recognize. You wouldn't even recognize their name, probably. And they may have created some of your favorite works. Like, I mean, I'm not really a huge movie person. So you could ask me, like, hey, here are five of your favorite movies. Who directed them? And I'd be like, I don't know. Who wrote them? I don't know. Who starred in them? Okay, I could probably tell you who starred in them. Yeah. And, and so it's, a, it's like a funny, it's a funny disconnect, um, how we engage in things. Like you said, like, I'm more in the book community, so I, I do pay attention to those things. I pay attention to publishers and authors now. But when you're generally engaging in something, I, I don't at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who produced, who was the producer on your favorite music artist? You know, like you probably don't know. But if you get into that industry and you talk to people that are within that industry, everyone knows who they are yes. and, and, and everyone respects them and they probably do make a very good living, but it's like a quiet living rather than the big celebrity of being a, like a rap artist or whatever. Yeah. It goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning, like how there can be authors with a huge amount of publicity or eyes and not not even making a living and a ton of quiet authors who are making a very good, decent living off of books that don't get a ton of online publicity. It's just, it's a very interesting, just an interesting, uh, I don't even know, biosphere dynamic organism. <laughs> right. And, 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 and people who run marketing departments for publishers, they think about this stuff all the time and they're always trying to crack that code. <laughs> And, and with with probably limited success, yeah. but I uh, I've kept you for quite a long time, so I I like to uh, I like to end each episode with a left field question for all of my guests, which is what's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? Oh gosh, okay, the last thing that I ate that blew my mind. That's such a good question. Um, okay, I think I'm gonna go. Um, we. My husband and I celebrated our, uh, was it an anniversary? No, it was his birthday. We like to go out to fancy restaurants. That's like one of our things. We don't buy each other gifts. We just go out to fancy restaurants. And I just got the um, the chef's, the omakase. So the chef's sushi platter. Like that's like the chef's choice. And we've had omakase a lot because that's one of our favorite things to go do. And this om omakase was mind blowing. It was at a restaurant in Seattle. And I don't even know what else to say, but it blew my mind. And now I'm hungry for it. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I've I've never gotten into the world of sushi. It, it kind of intimidates me. 
in a lot of ways. Like I'm a Midwestern boy. Okay. So like steak and potatoes is my thing. Um, I'm, I'm trying to expand outside of that. Uh, but sushi is like one of those foods that like totally intimidates the crap out of me. What I always tell people is like, you don't go for like the raw stuff. Just get like the California roll. Do you know what I mean? It's cooked. It's a classic. It's delicious. Start small. There's deep fried rolls. That's how I started. Like sushi freaked me out a while ago. I was in college when I tried it. And now I'm like eating like as raw as it gets. You just, you got to build up, you know, you got to build up to it. Yeah, that's great. I, when uh, we were in Paris last summer and um, my publicist kind of took us around everywhere and uh, she ordered, I just forgot what it's called, but the raw steak. Uh, tartare steak tartare Tartare. is like super popular in paris and she ordered it every single time she's like oh i never get to get this and but since you know the company is paying for these meals i'm gonna order it every time and every time i kiss how do you eat that that's so bizarre to me did you not try it i know i couldn't bring myself to oh it's so good i i i I, raw food's not scary you just gotta go for it it's definitely scary like i there's there's like a part of my brain where I'm like, especially if I'm traveling, that like, I don't want to get food poisoning right now. Like I, I have to be a professional. And so but it's something I should be trying like at, like at home when I can go home and deal with that if I have to. Let, let me put it this way, though. Like um, I'll eat anything once. That is like I will literally eat anything once. I will try it. Um, and I've only gotten food poisoning once in my life. And it was off a grilled cheese sandwich at a place I ate a bunch. Okay. So like I've never gotten food poisoning off of something unique because usually you just, the trick is you just have to go to a nice enough restaurant that they probably won't kill you. Don't try something new and wacky somewhere really random. Go to a place that's like high rated and then you'll be safe. (laughs) Oh, that sounds, that sounds, that's good advice. I like that. That was YouTuber Hillary Argyle. You can find Bookborn on YouTube and Instagram. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for a bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jason Knoll, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, Taylon, Brian, Will Lebelski, Bradley Thornhill, and Roberto Fontata for their backing on Patreon. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.